here we are then. 2019 is finally over. Hard cut. And here we are in the year 2020. 2020, new beginnings, new resolutions, new BTS wall calendar. January's photo sees the band all in matching pig hats. It's adorable. New hopes, new dreams. Feels good, doesn't it? That hard cut, something decisive about it. No crossover, no ambiguity, like a hard cut. That's like, it's like jumping with both feet, isn't it? Let's do it again. Here we are again, back in the decade, awkwardly known as, what, the 2010s, the 20-teens, the 20s, a decade of <sighs> hardened borders, austerity, vast ecological destabilization, a decade when all that personal data we'd been willingly feeding into our computers was finally commodified, sold to the highest bidder, transformed into a political tool to shape our ever-decreasing grip on reality. <sighs> What an absolute nightmare. Well, whatever it's called, the Twixies, the Twinkies, thank God it's over, hard cut. And we're in the 20s, baby. Anything could happen now. I might buy a bottle of green fedora, why not? I don't even remember the last decade. What's a drone? What's a food bank? What's an <laughs> Elon Musk Twitter account? Who cares? We're not doing any of that anymore. We're starting all new things now. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that midday on January the 1st, 2020 is just a mere 24 hours after midday on December 31st, 2019. No way. No way. I mean, yes, in measurable seconds and minutes. Sure, that is 24 hours, but come on. In terms of symbolism, there is a chasm of time between those two points, right? The interval between those two days feels immeasurably impossibly vast just pick up your phone and look at the date and try to tell me try to tell me that we have not just time traveled far into the future it's right there can you not feel it this episode's not gonna age well <laughs> but listen for now let's enjoy this one brief moment i'm just saying i think continuity is overrated sometimes a jump cut is exactly what we need. So, um, I am currently standing in the prints and drawing room at the Tate Modern Gallery in London. Uh, I'm here to look at a particular drawing from 1930, a drawing that was produced in the early days of the Surrealist movement. Um, the title of this drawing is uh, Cadavra Exqui, uh, in English, Exquisite Corpse. Now, this particular drawing is, um, it's a collaborative drawing. Uh, it was produced by four people working together. The artist, Valentine Hugo, the surrealist poet, Paul Elurd, Elurd's partner, Nush, and um, most famous of all, the co-founder of Surrealism, André Breton. Now, the Surrealists were fond of using games in their creative process. And um, this drawing here uh, was produced by playing just such a game, the exquisite corpse game, as it came to be known. In fact, 
this game proved to be so popular that you might well have played it yourself as a kid, though um, you might know it by a different name. One person draws a head at the top of a page, then folds the paper over to hide the work, leaving just a tiny smidgen of the drawing visible. They then pass the paper over to the next person who continues the drawing, completing the top part of the torso of the figure. The paper is then folded over again and passed to another person who completes the next section of the torso and so on and so on until the drawing of the figure is complete. Then when the paper is unfolded, all players get to see the whole image for the first time, this, uh, this strange gestalt creature that they've made Frankenstein together from all their individual efforts. Now, um, the first examples of the Exquisite Corpse game, uh, the type produced by Brett Island Company, like um, the one I've got in front of me here, uh, they veer pretty far from any traditional representations of the body. The um, head of uh, this particular corpse is uh, a basket with a bunch of snakes coming out of it, which I guess you know, kind of suggests a head with some dangerous thoughts slithering around inside it. And then, as we move down, the neck becomes a treble clef, which uh, I guess connects to the ideas of voice and song, I suppose. That treble clef is then grafted onto a torso, which is constructed out of a kind of romantic landscape. There's a waterfall, it's lined by trees, you know, which feels like a nice metaphor for lungs and stomach. Uh, and then below that, we get down to, okay, well, I presume we're in the junk section now. So there's a kind of chain link belt. And then below that, everything kind of disintegrates into strange symbols. I think whoever was in charge of the genital section might have been trying to um, doodle from the unconscious, which again, I feels pretty appropriate. It's quite Freudian. And then um, at, the, uh, at the very bottom of the page, um, one of the artists has added a big white plume of smoke coming out of the figure, um, a bit like a massive guff. <laughs> Andre Breton said that the Exquisite Corpse game, and uh, I'm quoting here, he said that the game inevitably raises anthropomorphism to its highest pitch. It's as if the human body is crying out to be abstracted, to be transformed into something else as a way to expose what's really going on under our skin. And the rules of the Exquisite Corpse game just help tease out that desire that we all have to release the body from its usual packaging. It's kind of like a painting of a nude, but for the unconscious mind. And maybe this is why Breton chose the human body as the starting point for the game, rather than say, you know, like a building or a still life. He chose a body because the body itself is the oldest symbolic template we have. I mean, check a cave painting if you don't believe me. The body is so known, so familiar, that we can see it even when it's utterly abstracted. No matter how bizarre that exquisite corpse drawing looked to me at first glance, it still felt like a body, even though there was really no body there at all. We've been drawing the body, dreaming the body for so long, 
that we can see the human body even in the slightest, most abstract rendition. Look at the history of product design, of architecture. You'll find constant references to the curves of the human body. I mean, that's why we're all so impossibly aroused by Coke bottles, aren't we? Don't kink shame me, okay? The human body has been coded into everything. We live in an anthropomorphic world. Anyone born today, all right, we are born into the palace of the beast. You know, the, the beast in the palace. Be our guest, be our guest, you know. Of course, we don't just project the human body outwards onto the world around us. Oh no, that door swings both ways. Having trained ourselves to see the human body in everything, we also inevitably absorb all those abstractions back into our own internal conception of the body. Which is why when we look at our own bodies in the mirror, all we see is this awful dysmorphic collage of anxieties and expectations. We've been dreaming of the human body for so long that we can't wake up. Every part of us seemingly referencing a hundred different people, a thousand different objects. We're all exquisite corpses now. And maybe accepting this, accepting our inherent exquisite corpsiness, maybe that can help us when it comes to learning to love our bodies. It might help us to accept that we are all a jumble of influences and ideas all pulling in different directions, each part oblivious to the designs of the other. I guess that's one of the reasons that I love the Exquisite Corpse game. It wears its plurality on the outside. It's a game that's about working together, but also about remaining distinct. There's a kind of mutual respect for all the different sections. The body is a kind of coalition. The one thing you can say about every single exquisite corpse ever created, not just the ones made by famous dead surrealists, but even ones made by dickheads like you and me, the one thing you can say is that every single one of them would be impossible to create through one mind alone. Their specialness, their otherworldliness, their transcendent quality derives from that feeling of plurality. That's the contradiction at the heart of every exquisite corpse. Every single one of those corpses feels alive. Um, for a while, I've been thinking about what an audio equivalent of an exquisite corpse might sound like. I've always been interested in working collaboratively as a writer. I do think it breathes life into a work and um, the Exquisite Corpse game feels like such a healthy model for collaboration. So I really wanted to give it a go. Around the start of 2019, I started a correspondence with audio maker Clive Desmond over in Toronto. Clive is the writer producer of the wonderful podcast Pod Planet. You can subscribe to the show at podplanet.org. I pitched to Clive 
that uh, the pair of us together have a go at making our own exquisite corpse audio piece. The rules were simple, just like the original game played by Breton. We too would make an audio piece tracing the shape of a body. The first player would make a three minute audio piece on the theme of hair. It could be any genre, any format, any style, a story, an essay, anything. Then they would send over via email a tiny snippet of that piece, the last 10 seconds to the other player. The other player would then use those last 10 seconds as the jumping off point for the next three minute audio piece. And that one will be on the theme of the head, any genre, any format, any style. And then the process would repeat over and over, passing back and forth from hair to head, to torso, to stomach, to genitalia, to legs, to feet, each time passing tiny snippets of audio back and forth between us so we could be working together on the same audio project whilst also remaining oblivious to the other's work. Now, the whole thing took yeah, pretty much the entire year. Um, the project finally wrapped about two weeks ago, which meant um, for the first time in the project, we were allowed to assemble the various parts of the body together into one continuous audio piece which was a moment of trepidation. It's our equivalent of unfolding that piece of paper at the end to see what new audio life form we created. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's alive. You know, um, when we put the pieces together, I thought I was ready for anything, but um, Clive had done something I hadn't anticipated at all. Um, he'd used his half of the project to try and tell a coherent story all the way through. So um, in a good way, I think Clive's approach makes the whole project considerably more palatable to listen to. And also I, I think it provides the corpse with a bit of a sturdy backbone. But um, even with that sturdy backbone in place, taken as a whole, uh, the body that Clive and I have constructed together over the last year is still a pretty unusual beast. I mean, this is a body assembled from short fiction, essay, poetry, found sound, some other stuff. It definitely could not have been made by a single mind. And that makes it instantly fascinating to me. Okay, uh, time to get this corpse on its feet. Thanks again to Clive Desmond. Here we go. Minty Bridges was 28 when she lost her husband Walter, then 85. After he was presumed dead, she moved into a small apartment in the mundane New York enclave called Murray Hill. As her late husband Walter had been wealthy and New York was teeming with grifters, Minty had been advised to keep a low profile and spend as little money as possible until Walter's will had been finalized. Looking around Mindy's new apartment, everything was nice. Flowers over there, brand new fridge, fireplace. The only thing lacking was water pressure. Her shower was gutless. As a stopgap measure, three or four times a week, Mindy snuck into the Palace Hotel a few blocks away and used its vast facilities. With some 827 rooms, Standing 55 stories tall, the Palace Hotel was large. 
It also had a running track, a swimming pool, and a sun-drenched gymnasium. But for Mindy, the real draw of the hotel were the showers in the ladies' change room. There were over 100 stalls. It had to be the most consistent supply of hot water in the United States. Not that she was dirty, but Mindy's personal hygiene wasn't the only reason, the true reason she went to the hotel. There was another reason. His name was Barney, and since Walter's passing, Barney had become Mindy's most trusted friend and confidant. Once past the front desk, she scurried to the gym and the women's change room. After putting her clothes and things away in the locker, she took Barney to one of the shower stalls and began shampooing him. Minty always started by washing Barney's scalp. He was a hairy little fella and hardly fastidious, so there were always leftover kibble or crumbs around. She poured a capful of shampoo on his head and worked up quite the lather. Oh, Barney, said Minty, don't make such a fuss. After she changed into her street clothes, Mindy put Barney in the basket, dressed herself, and left the hotel. Once on Madison Avenue, Mindy walked south. She had plans to meet an old friend at Patton Pending for a drink and a snack. Mindy felt a slight chill of autumn in the air. You could smell a freshly shampooed poodle half a block away. Yes, it is true. You can smell a freshly shampooed poodle half a block away. Many can smell a shampooed poodle from a very great distance indeed, but not me. Believe me, this is a genuine source of sadness, my lack of olfactory awareness. My nose, although prominent, is almost entirely ornamental. I have acute rhinitis, permanent scarring of the nasal tissue. Not so much a nose as a well-preserved ruin of a nose. When it comes to metaphors for the nose, there is no better source than the stories of Mervyn Peake, who I think was the unparalleled master of the facial metaphor. In fact, they were one of the central pillars of his writing process. Apparently, whenever Mervyn Peake had writer's block, whenever he was stuck for a piece of dialogue to move a scene forward, Peake would draw a little sketch of the character's head and ask himself, what kind of thing would that head say next? Which is why the original manuscripts of Mervyn Peake's novels are bursting with these wonderful drawings of his characters. Again and again, Peake went back to the face for inspiration, meditating on every angle of composure, every micro expression. And it's this attention to detail that makes his descriptions of faces some of the greatest recorded in literature. At least I think so. His sharp nose, not unlike the beak of a bird, trembled as though on the scent of some Olympian quarry. There's no shortage of noses in Peake's writing. Noses appear with particular frequency in Peake's novella, 
Mr. Pie. His nose, like a quill, seemed sharper than ever, as though it were keeping pace with the penetrating speed of his thoughts. The titular Mr. Pie has a nose that is pretty much constantly commented upon, which makes me think that Mervyn Peake used that interesting nose as a kind of divining rod for the narrative. Mr. Pie follows his nose, and Mervyn Peake does the same. Mr. Pie lifted his head again, his thorn-shaped nose veering towards her and the rest of his round face following it, as a ship must follow its bowsprit. Mr. Pie is a story about a pious man who comes to an island to do good things in the name of God and then realises, in horror, that he has done so many good things that he is now sprouting angel wings. So again, you get this idea of this interplay between what people look like and the actions they take. Appearance and actions transforming each other, which makes complete sense when you think about Peak doodling in the margins. Peak's descriptions of Mr. Pie's nose also mirror this transformation. The sharpness of his nose might have been described as cherubic. Mr. Pie tries to halt the growth of his wings by changing his ways and dedicating himself to doing bad things instead, which eventually leads to him sprouting horns. The shadow of Mr. Pie's head was quite motionless, and in profile, the nose as sharp as a bill. All the while, Pie's nose leads him forever forwards, leading the character into deeper and deeper complications, like a malfunctioning compass strapped to the front of his head. If the eyes are the window of the soul, perhaps the nose is the narrative line. Invisible to the owner, but still offering clear direction to anyone who takes the time to study it. Perhaps even the dusty temple of my nose is not completely forsaken. I just have to ask myself, what would a nose like this say next? Approaching the bar with Barney in tow, Mindy saw her chum Sally Rawling in the window, waving timidly. After exchanging the obligatory hug and kiss, Mindy sat down at Sally's table and placed the basket Barney was in on an empty chair to the side. Barney gently poked his nose through the lid of the basket and sniffed the alcohol-infused air of the tavern. What a darling boy he is. Did you say that Barney was born with a full set of teeth? asked Sally. That's an odd question, thought Mindy. Initially, the conversation between the two friends was sunny and light and just harmless mid-afternoon chit-chat. But by the third drink, vodka, I believe, the atmosphere had grown melancholic and Mindy could feel her heart beating quicker. It was never a good sign. As Sally sat in silence, Mindy began to reminisce about her wedding. Set some six years ago at the secretive Piping Rock Club. Mindy was 22, but looked 15, and Walter was 79, but looked not a day over 70. 
Back then, you could still play a game of golf with the piping rock, because there was still grass on the course. Mindy's heart beat faster as she recalled the guests. The Kissingers, Mayor and Mrs. Palamountain, Dee Dee and Oscar Schaefer, Penny Doubleday, Betsy Grunwald, Eric Sayer, the plastic surgeon, C.D. Ford, Fran Kellogg, Hello Franny, and the irrepressible Variety Jones. In other words, the whole gang. Then, as if possessed by demons, Mindy looked Sally straight in the eyes and said, How many speedballs did we do, Sally? How many Bellinis did we drink? How white were my nostrils? I remember scarfing back a lot of bacon-wrapped scallops, but how many? Were Rene Richards and Martina Navratilova really there? Did they bring Richard Simmons? Then Mindy went pale and slumped over, passed out. Good is gone. Concerned, Sally grabbed her unconscious friend and began shaking her, saying, Mindy, 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 wake up, Mindy. Mindy, are you all right? Mindy snapped out of the darkness. She looked around and saw she was once again at patent pending with her old friend, Sally, and her freshly washed dog, Barney. She checked her pulse with her thumb and said, Hmm, if you don't mind, I think I should go home now. I think I've had enough for one day. Can you cover the tab? She walked home with Barney and thought about the wedding again. All she knew was her heart was beating faster and faster and faster. Stay calm, place your palm face down on the table. Remember the feeling of drawing around it. Five years old with a crayon, mapping the edge of you. Drawing an island to play on. Did you color it green, fill it with birds and ferns, and you with a sun? Then, between finger and thumb, a beach of lilac sand cool on the soles of your feet, see like a stolen Rembrandt, you could almost stay here forever, huh, almost forget it's your hand, dug into the rock, some ancient civilization left drawings of rotary phones, cootie catchers and clapping games, shapes thought lost long ago, the solution to a Rubik's Cube, presumed forgotten, recorded in the passages running under the island. One tunnel for money, one tunnel for heart, one tunnel for life, running deeper and darker than you can define. Back topside, you camp on Ringfinger Ridge. You dream of a touch of another. Wait to the sound of a cry. 
the mountains rise to the south. So you climb. The rock tattooed with what you can't read. Too steep to stop. Bleeding as you drag yourself up. Wind in your bones, nothing to breathe. Fingers are red, listen. You may feel the pain moving. Stay calm. Place your palm face down on the bone white rock. Remember the feeling of drawing around it. Five years old with a crayon. Mapping the edge of you. Drawing a line that you'll stay on. Sierra always made her feel better. She'd come to her family home on Long Island with Barney for the weekend. The large, arts and crafts style house overlooked the Atlantic from the front and a small, unnamed river out back. As Mindy's family had gone to Europe for an extended stay, the house was always empty. Mindy put away her things and prepared to go canoeing. She filled her Barnes & Noble tote bag with some apples, some organic trail mix, and some bottled water. In the back mudroom, she grabbed a life jacket and slathered on some sunscreen. She paused for a moment and looked out the door at the river. She thought she heard something in the bulrushes that surrounded the dock. But it was autumn, and most wildlife had long since flown the coop for warmer destinations. At the river's edge, she dragged her 12-foot canoe into the water, and Barney hopped compliantly into the bow, and they were off. After 10 minutes of paddling among the gorgeous water lilies and reeds, Mindy reached into her tote bag and pulled out an apple. Just as she was ready to begin paddling again, Mindy found a small sealed bag of bite-sized brownies at the bottom of her tote. Where had they come from? Well, never mind. As though it was Easter morning, she and Barney ripped open the bag and ate them too. Hoping she would work off the calories she had consumed, she put her oar back in the water. But canoeing was no longer easy, as her belly was bursting. That's when she thought again of her deceased husband, Walter, and of the mystery surrounding his death. His body had never been found. Mindy knew something was wrong. She could feel it. You know something is wrong. Can you feel it? Down there. Erectile dysfunction affects 50% of men over 50. Isn't it time you found your body again? Ask your pharmacist about Body of the Gods. Martinis at the bar across the road. I became an alcoholic. 
and I regret absolutely nothing. But now, I want to find my body again. I don't know exactly how many years into my marriage it happened, but somewhere along the way, I totally abandoned my body. Maybe I left it in the office one night. Maybe I left it in the bed of one of my many affairs. But now, I want my body back. And I'm going to find it. Once upon a time, sex was easy. You'd just put on your best cowboy hat, drive up to the latest roller disco, invite a dame to come share a glass of Watney's Red Barrel, and then pass out in a stairwell. Sex was beautiful, and you knew it was sex, because everything else was ugly and disgusting and looked like WB Yeats. These days, everything is beautiful. Everything is sexy. Somehow, sex has found its way into everything. Every time I turn on my computer, sex is always there in the background, like one pop-up window that I have no idea how to close. But I will show the world. No matter how horny this world becomes, I will be hornier. I am not going down without a fight. If your erection lasts for more than four hours and all your penis turns orange and all you begin to see ghosts, stop taking Body of the Gods and call your doctor straight away for more side effects. See our advertisement in December's edition of Golf Digest. Welcome back to Drive Time here on S-Rocks. My name, as always, is Sandy Ice Swan. You're ready for some back-to-back hits from the last year that mattered. 1973. It's easy Top. Phone lines are still open. If you have a complaint about the lack of respect that you get from the daughter of your first wife, give us a call. 090 <laughs> As the taxi lugged along the streets of Sag Harbor, Mindy Bridges thought about her dead husband, Walter. Almost a year to the day, Walter's car had been found parked in the marina. There was a note on the dashboard that simply said, I'm sorry. His canoe was missing from its shed. The police believed that Walter had paddled out to sea. Being 85, he had quickly rowed himself into a stupor. A few days after Walter had been declared missing, divers found his watch at the bottom of the marina. Shortly after, a small boy found Walter's canoe washed up a mile down shore. After six months with no leads, Sag Harbor police declared Walter dead, a suicide. When Minty's taxi arrived at the train station, she set aside all thoughts of Walter. She needed to visit the ladies' room, but it was too late. The train had already pulled in. This was not good news. The washrooms on board were awful. Now Mindy would have to wait until she got home. Mindy grabbed Barney in his carrying case and climbed on board. She sat down alone and crossed her legs to control the pressure building in her tiny walnut-sized bladder. Arriving in the city, and seeing not a taxi in sight, 
Mindy strapped a leash on Barney and walked homeward to the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Block after block, she could feel the pressure of her bladder increase. Poor Mindy needed relief, and soon. At First Avenue and 30th, just kitty corner from Bellevue Hospital, Barney came to a sudden halt. He lifted his leg and left his mark on the base of a fire hydrant. Mindy wanted to go. A 1990 VW Rabbit sideswiped a Ford sedan, sending metal, glass, and debris everywhere. A fire hydrant was knocked over. The driver of the Rabbit was unhurt, but the same could not be said of the driver of the Ford sedan. Because of the proximity of the hospital, it was no surprise when three medics, carrying a gurney, appeared on the scene in less than a minute. Quick as cheetahs on the hunt, the medics rushed to the battered Ford and untangled the casualty inside. Once they had the body, it was strapped to the gurney and the medics vanished into the hospital. At this moment, Mindy could stand no more. Her bladder was about to burst like a water pipe in the winter. Accident or not, and with Barney in tow, Mindy dashed into the lobby of the hospital and looked for a lavatory. In a state of panic, she scrambled into the ladies' room and grabbed the nearest empty stall. Barney sat quietly beside her and sniffed the air. As the minutes went by, Mindy micturated with the ease of the Niagara River. Relief had never felt so warranted or so good. Her business now finished, Mindy stood up and made a terrible discovery. The door was jammed shut and Mindy was now trapped in the stall. Mindy began banging on the door, but no one came. She increased the intensity of her banging, yet in doing so, scared Barney, who bolted out of the stall into the adjacent stairwell. The next flight down, he found himself in a dimly lit room. In the middle of the room were four stainless steel tables, each equipped with a large sink where the headboard should be. Four ceiling fans created a gentle flow of air. On the last table, Barney saw the supine body of a man, covered by a thick cotton sheet. What a welcome place to nap, thought Barney, who stepped gingerly under the table and lay himself down. Upstairs, Mindy's yelling and banging finally came to the attention of an orderly. Once free, Mindy explained the disappearance of Barney. While the orderly ran down the halls, Mindy ran down the staircase, quickly coming upon the same room that Barney had. She saw Barney curled up below one of the tables nearest to the entrance door. Oh, there you are, she whispered. As Barney woke up, Mindy took his lead. Then Mindy realized she was standing in front of a dead body, covered head to toe in a sheet. Mindy wondered if the body was the poor man pulled from the wreck outside. Let's go home now, she said under her breath. As Mindy and Barney scurried out, Barney noticed a manila toe tag on the floor. It had become detached from the body on the table. It's too bad Barney was a dog and could therefore neither read nor speak because written on the tag were two words. Walter Bridges. Outside, as Mindy and Barney walked up First Avenue, a light rain began to fall. 
said they would recruit. I'm an actor. I am currently working on a production of Measure for Measure at the Ceramic here in Blacksley. I play the part of Vincento, that's why I'm dressed like this. In this video, I'm going to show you how to walk off stage. Okay, now, lots of actors find this difficult, but really, it's just a matter of confidence. I am going to deliver a line, and then I'm going to walk into the wings, stage right. Beyond a certain point, you are not going to be able to see me anymore, and that's okay. That's what we call exiting a stage. The, uh, the line that uh, I'm going to deliver, it's the final line from Act 3, Scene 2 of The Life and Death of King John. Um, let me just get into character. England, cousin. Hubert shall be your man. Attend on you with all true duty. On towards Calais. Ho! still right here. So David McGrick. I understand it is a little confusing to pretend you're leaving a room when really you're just going and standing behind the curtain. I like to call it the art of leaving without leaving. Um, don't worry if you didn't get it all. Part of the trick is making it look easy. Trust me. <laughs> Back when I started it certainly wasn't easy for me. I can tell you even studying under the great Ralph Richardson. I remember once um, we were in uh, Three Sisters together and uh, Chekhov. And I remember Richardson coming over to me um, just before the curtain. And he said, remember, David, the audience hates to see you go. We all hate to see you go. But you must not forget to leave the stage when the part is over. You can't simply hang around like some kind of frilly standing lamp. You have to get off because another scene is starting and you're not in that one. And um, that was wonderful advice. I've never forgotten it. Now, if you are interested in the history of exiting, I can tell you that the first ever exit written into a monologue. Well, it was probably the, um, the text found on the walls of the pyramid of the Pharaoh Unas at Saqqara, Egypt, from around 2400 BC as all actors know. Um, written in hieroglyph, the text reads, hang on, let me just get into character. Oh, Unis, you have not gone away dead. You have gone away alive. <clears throat> so yes, these were essentially stage directions, you see. The author is saying, uh, what I want you to do, Pharaoh Unus, is to leave without leaving. Can you do that for me? You're going to walk off the stage, so to speak, but it's not really going, you see, Pharaoh, though you will technically be gone. You won't really be gone. You'll just be standing 
behind a curtain, as it were. So, um, let's just put it on its feet for a second, just so you can see that in action. Just imagine that I am Pharaoh Eunice. Here I am. I am not going away dead. Thanks again to Clive Desmond for all his hard work. Subscribe to Clive's podcast, Pod Planet, via his website, podplanet.org. I uh, I really enjoyed trying out this experiment. Um, Yeah. I'd like to do it again someday. This program is funded by you, the listener. I have a small and incredibly supportive group of people who donate money to the show via the website patron.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's thanks to those people that this show exists. Um, If you like the show and would like to help it continue, consider signing up via Patreon. One more time, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Ross G. Sutherland. Um, I have just released a bonus film for all patron supporters who donate $5 a month or more. The film is called After Ghosts Before Breakfast. It's a reinterpretation of a famous Dada film by Hans Richter from 1928. It also contains a cameo from Marie Osmond. If you subscribe to Patreon, you'll get that film plus uh, well, five years of previous perks i'm also just about to release uh an additional podcast episode for my 15 patron supporters um that one is an exclusive extract from a book i'm currently writing uh that should be up on the feed by the end of january from all the disparate parts of me to uh all the disparate parts of you thanks for listening and um i'll be back soon with more imaginary advice Bye.